So, um, I thought tonight I'd talk about <clears throat> modern perspectives on the Buddha's emphasis on how important our friends are in our spiritual practice. So, in order to do this with any kind of a straight face before I launch into this, I want us to spend a moment and turn towards somebody you don't know, you haven't met, and do the thing we all hate to do the most as adults, introduce yourself. Actually, though, um, the connections that we can make both before and after uh, the Buddhist uh, talks and the meditations are really important because, um, as we'll discuss, the spiritual path is founded on developing really uh, caring open, tolerant, emotional environments. And we generally don't get that kind of tolerance and that kind of uh, availability that we need as people to um, uh, really find and develop a sense of permission to speak what's occurring in our lives on an emotional level. We don't really get it and from our families as much as we need, from uh, so many of the business environments or any other environments that we're in, very often they're agenda-driven. Even uh, environments that can be goal-oriented, whether uh, progressive or otherwise, generally still have a, a set agenda. But the agenda that we're trying to develop is one of providing a secure holding environment for each other to uh, really become emotionally honest and available. So the Buddha wrote the following. Uh, he wrote uh, just so much about the importance of friends. In one famous sutta with Ananda, uh, his lieutenant, the Buddha expressed that the Sangha, the Buddhist community was the foundation of all of the spiritual endeavor. He also wrote in um, the Shorter Discourses, number 76, if you do no harm but seek out those who do, you're still associated with harmfulness. The sort of person you seek out and befriend is the sort of person you become. We become, in other words, the person, the people that we associate with. 
One who, and here the Buddha comes with his over-the-top analogies. He's got a lot of them. (laughs) This is a good one. One who wraps rotting fish in leaves makes those leaves smell. (laughs) This is what happens when we hang out with fools. One who wraps powdered incense in leaves makes those leaves fragrant. So it is if you seek out those who are wise. So uh, this observation that the Buddha made that we become the people that we hang out is a very important observation. We all, because we have an inner chattering mind with thoughts that nobody else can hear, we all are under the idea that we can somehow stand apart from the stressful, worried, bent-out-of-shape, neurotic, driven, uh, hyper-stressed New Yorkers that surround us, that we can uh, remain separate, apart, immune, protected. But actually, the mind is a mimic machine. So much of what... uh, Contemporary philosophers from Dawkins to Foucault to uh, great neuroscientists, especially Damasio et al., uh, show is just how much the mind is set up to imitate, to internalize, to bring in the behaviors, the thoughts, the views, the opinions, the prejudices, the biases, the uh, activities, the values of those around us. And it's not a conscious quality of the mind. It's what the mind does. It's the reason why the human race has become the dominant species is not just because we can, A, bond together really well, which we can, but what we can do uh, in... One single generation takes many, 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 many generations of our nearest uh, primates to accomplish. I, I saw this documentary where it took, um, I think it was chimpanzees, uh, I'm not sure who, which, whether, whether it was chimpanzees or uh, bonobos, or I'm not sure what it was, but they, uh, it took them generations to simply pass on the ability to wash fruit that had fallen from the tree before eating it. Um, Whereas uh, humans, basically, within the course of three years, um, uh, the computer mouse went from a completely unknown device to a device that had saturation culturally. We can pass on skills, behaviors, abilities simply by observing. In fact, Albert Bandura, one of the great great revered uh, child psychologist demonstrated that the bulk of the way we learn as human beings is not intellectually or what's called explicitly by getting an idea and thinking the idea and knowing the idea. We learn implicitly, which is a process known as observational learning or modeling or mimicry. We observe what other people do, and we copy it. For example, if you put somebody in a room with people who are slightly tapping their feet, 
clinical studies show that within moments you'll start tapping your feet. You've all noticed this with yawning and stretching and all the other subtle maneuvers we do. We, uh, there was a study with what's called the um, Bobo doll. I have no idea what a Bobo doll is. You know what it is? It's a blow-up doll, no? A blow-up doll? Okay, it's a blow-up doll. <laughs> not that kind. Not that, nothing? Oh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Taking this already to a dark place. Um, so, with the, uh, they split up kids into various groups, and uh, the adult, the teacher, would bring the Bobo doll into the room, and some teachers would just leave it in the corner, some teachers would sit and hold it, some teachers would, you know, slap it around. <laughs> and they found that after the teacher left, although the teacher didn't call attention to what it was doing, it didn't speak about the Bobo doll, it just gave a general talk, but it would it would do things to the Bobo doll during the class, and then when the teacher would go away, they video the kids, and of course, the kids would immediately mimic exactly the behaviors. They implicitly learned to treat the doll the exact way that the adult did. The great child psychologist Lev Vygotsky determined that all human internal chatter starts out as just imitating the instructions that our mothers and fathers give us. That's all we're doing with our chatter, is just imitating the voices of instructions and things we've heard. So we are imitation machines. There's even an entire science of it, memes, started by Dawkins, that's now got uh, quite a lot of wonderful studies in it. So this imitating <coughs> ability uh, plays very important roles in our lives. The most important is what's known as idealization. As children and as adults, we need other people to set aspirational goals for us. Goals not in terms of people who suddenly make a lot of money or attain a lot of power, but simply people who show us that happiness is achievable, that people can set uh, goals and achieve them through diligence, through hard work, through um, patience, endeavor. Without this, it's shown that we find it very difficult without caretakers who demonstrate that they can achieve their goals. It becomes very, very difficult ourselves to achieve that. And the only way we can continue on our paths is when we surround ourselves with people who are, uh, in essence, demonstrating this aspirational quality. Again, it's not about people who are being successful. It's not about people who are attaining money. It's about surrounding ourselves with people who are setting goals in terms of happiness, experience, learning new tools, developing new skills, and seeing that these capabilities are possible. So it's important to pick people from that quality. We can never, even if we surround ourselves with people who are 
successful or people who are endowed with beauty, none of those things will rub off, needless, necessarily. What will rub off, though, is the behaviors that in and of themselves are rewarding. The problem, though, is not only are we imitating the people who are worthwhile, we are unfortunately surrounded by, um, I can't remember the Buddhist word for it, but basically people who are sputtering around, getting bent out of shape, stressed out, worrying about things that have the shelf life of yoga, shit that don't matter at all. You go to any workplace, any environment, you go to any airport, you go to any... Uh, you take any commute on the subway, and you will just see people running around like crazy trying to shave two minutes off of their commute and acting, or, you know, people cutting other people off, endangering their lives. And so we're surrounded by um, people enacting really poor priorities. Um, So the question then becomes... A lot of the times we don't have any choice in the matter. Sometimes we're just forced to work with people who are stressed out, who get caught up in uh, focusing on things that are really quite different than our value systems or our moral structures. And so knowing, though, that we tend to imitate or mimic other people, we can still find ourselves, to our horror, really stressed out at the end of the day, even though we're engaged in a project that doesn't mean anything to us. We can find ourselves really caught up in fear when we're around people who are frightened about needless things. We can find ourselves gossiping when we are surrounded by people who gossip. We can find ourselves, as the Buddha says, becoming the people that we don't want to become. So the question then becomes, what do we do when this happens? Well, Bandura said there's three qualities that go into... Make sure I'm recording. Maybe I... uh, There's three qualities that go into mimicking other people, internalizing other people. The first is you have to pay attention to them. (laughs) This sounds kind of obvious, but sadly, a lot of studies show that people, if you say to someone overtly, pay attention to anyone you want, but person X in a party, that's who they will spend the vast majority of the time focusing on. The moment you determine that someone's unskillful, horrible, worth avoiding, bad news, (laughs) your mind will want to go there all the time. Why is this? The right hemisphere of your brain thinks they're a threat to your survival or that they're, uh, for some reason, they are uh, making you vulnerable. And wherever there's something that can make you vulnerable or seems to be a threat... The right hemisphere controls not only your emotions, but also where you focus your attention. So we are drawn to the people we least want to pay attention to. Ever been at a party when an ex walks into the party? You can be talking to the most wonderful person, somebody who might even be a potential new partner or 
whatever. But the mind, the right hemisphere, will go. There they are. I hate them. They're doing something really awful, I bet. I don't know why your, your right hemisphere talks like a computer. I, I'm not sure about that. You should investigate that. Uh, uh, but anyway. That's the nature of the emotional mind. So what we have to be able to do, as the Buddha talked about in the Sabhasava Sutta, is literally don't allow the mind to focus on what it wants. We have to sometimes take charge and focus on people that we know are skillful. Pull attention away. If you're at work and you're listening to someone who's really quite horrible, and they do exist, the goal is to pull your attention away, you can still hear them, but look away. Just interrupting focus has been shown to interrupt the process of unconsciously copying people. The second quality is we also reproduce what we've observed and we tend to do it immediately after we've encountered somebody that we're about to mimic. So when you're around someone who's unskillful, after you uh, see them and you break away, try to act out of the exact opposite behavior than what they've been enacting. So if you're around somebody who's stressful, think and speak thoughts of uh, you know, gratitude and ease. If you're around somebody who's very judgmental and gossiping, find somebody and speak appreciatively about something or someone. It works. It actually focuses the mind away and it interrupts the process of emotional contagion. There's a lot of studies in emotion contagion. And one of the first things to do is simply act out on the exact opposite impulse. This is really important because in a lot of environments, people build, unfortunately, people build uh, bonding in all the wrong way. In workplaces... People bond often through gossiping about other people rather than seeing the underlying structures that cause suffering. They just blame the fact that they're overworked or that they, they're under stress. They'll blame it on a specific individual. And this tendency not only causes unskillfulness, but it also ingrains some of the worst tendencies that bring us no lasting peace. So it's really important when, if we... It, we might not feel the permission when we're around people who are just slamming somebody else. We might not feel the, the, uh, the uh, confidence to say, no, we really shouldn't be talking negatively. If that's the case, find some, something, someone afterwards and try to develop some appreciation. The third quality is... Um, very often when we see people who seem to be rewarded for bad behavior, there was a study done by Bandura that said that we tend to be drawn more towards that behavior. So this can be, in other words, uh, think of Dick Cheney. <laughs> I know, do we really have to? <laughs> Here's a complete ass who seems to get away with everything and uh, is extremely wealthy. And yet, though, when we reflect that we don't know what's going on in his mind, we don't know what all those years of 
conniving and, and political machinery and absolute indifference to human suffering, what it's done to the inside of that guy's brain, that's called reflecting on karma. We might not see that other people are suffering, but when you're around people who are acting unskillfully and accruing wealth or seeming to get away with it, it's really important to reflect that we don't know the entire picture. Now, the second quality that um, is worth talking about is we need people not only to establish worthwhile aspirations, a sense of uh, uh, setting behaviors before us that we can aspire towards. We also need people to help us develop what's known as a, heart, a healthy sense of narcissism. Narcissism has gotten a really bad rap. <laughs> we all like to say, oh, that guy, that, so, that person's so narcissistic. All they do is they, they talk about themselves. And it's true, there are people who are narcissistic to a destructive degree, to a degree that uh, ruins their interpersonal relationships. But every single important psychologist of the late 20th century has documented that in order to feel we can achieve anything in life, we have to have a healthy sense of narcissism in the sense that you have to believe you are capable. And the problem is, is that a lot of us grow up in environments, in institutions, amongst people that strip us entirely of any sense of ability, skills, uh, any even small sense of the ability to achieve has been stripped away. Very often, in fact, if we don't receive any of those messages, yes, you can um, achieve, you can put together, you can actually set goals and accomplish them. If we don't receive them from key caretakers and from institutions, we can uh, wind up in adult life completely bereft of that sense of um, uh, it, it, feeling like we're agents that can achieve our goals. And the work of the great Heinz Kohut, who was a, an amazing 20th century psychiatrist, demonstrated by, by clinical studies that we need people to tell us or to reward us or to at least get acknowledgement for our efforts. That's, we need people. We can't reward ourselves as much as we need if we really are going to feel enabled. We need to have people empowering us. We need to have people, in essence, validating us. Now, one of the studies that was done was they split children into two groups. They split the children into one group. One of the groups was uh, children whose parents rewarded them for their grades. Gave them, a, you know, took them out to dinner, made a big deal for their grades, really gave their approval and their blessing based on grades. The other kids were the ones whose parents rewarded them for effort. Not their grades, but just taking time to practice. Guess which kids stayed in school and lined up in jobs that they loved? Any guess? Effort. The kids who were rewarded for their effort 
not for the results, which are completely beyond our control because it depends on factors that are outside of our control, but people who simply were rewarded for their effort began to internalize those voices and began to enjoy learning, developing new skills, began to develop a new cooperative relationship with teachers, began to work well with others. The kids who were rewarded from grades developed adversarial relationships with their teachers. They developed competitive qualities with other kids. And when they couldn't master a new skill easily, they would often quit and they would drop out invariably earlier. And they almost invariably also wound up in jobs that they didn't love. So this means that when we're developing this skill of feeling that we are capable, what we need to do is to connect and reward each other, not based on our results, our achievements, but simply on the effort we put in in life. Don't focus when you are around those people that you love and you care about. Don't go to the nice little trophies and awards and the nice remarks that you get. Talk and focus on the effort, the care, the time, the, uh, the love, the work, the preparation that you are putting into your life, your endeavor. Because at the end of the day, nobody can guarantee you success. Success is built on whims that are entirely beyond our control. But if we have people who are rewarding us, are, are basically validating the, what the Buddha uh, called effort, uh, viriya in Pali, uh, that is not only the engine that will allow us to pick up new skills and tools throughout our entire life, but it's also one of the core factors in the spiritual life. In, um, when I work with people one-on-one and, and uh, when I work teaching people meditation and all the spiritual tools, they all are difficult at first. And if we don't have a feeling of... Um, loving putting effort and doing things that are <coughs> challenging, then we'll never be able to get out of the sort of default ruts that the human mind is set up to be in. The human mind is set up basically by evolution to worry, fear, and survive at all costs. That's the way your brain has been set up through evolution. It's not been set up to prioritize happiness or tranquility. If you want that, we need to put a little bit of effort into our meditation, to being kind with ourselves and others, to being patient with ourselves, to reward ourselves and to seek validation and secure connections. Finally, the last thing that we really, really need from our friends is a secure, tolerant, emotional environment. Very often we grow up in families that do not tolerate certain emotions very well. Some families are great with anger, but if you say you're sad, they'll try to fix you. They'll try to, what do you got to be sad about? This is what my parents would say, but in a, a Jewish accent. <laughs> 
Well, my mom actually got rid of her Jewish accent. She had a Bronx accent, but she, she took lessons so she wouldn't have to speak in it. I don't know why I'm telling you that. Uh, <laughs> but um, she, would, she would say ridiculously that there were kids starving if I was sad. I don't know what the two things had to do with it. <laughs> I don't like school. What do you got to be sad about? There are kids who would die to go to school. Okay, send them. You know. Uh, so I grew up uh, into, you know, for many years an alcoholic that whenever I felt any form of sadness, I didn't feel permission to share about it with others. So I developed a dysphoric relationship with that emotion, and when it would come up, I'd drink. That's what we do when we have dysphoric relationship with certain emotional states. If we don't feel permission to share them, we need to get rid of them. What we'll do is we'll shop when we feel lonely, we'll drink when we feel sad or angry, we'll gamble when we feel bored, we'll shop again (laughs) when we feel disconnected, we'll go on Facebook, we'll put up a selfie, look at me, look at my haircut, this look, how, don't I look? Sexy? Oh, yeah, you look sexy. Go away. Um, so that's what we'll do. And none of these, none of these, uh, these uh, practices or behaviors will get rid of or, or do anything. They will just, for a little while, divert our attention from the emotion, and then the emotional state will be there. But it will have an increasingly awkward and what's known as dysphoric, uh, a really stressful relationship. Whenever we feel sad, we'll go, oh, no, I can't feel this. I can't feel bored. I can't feel lonely. That wasn't permitted. We don't think that aloud. We just feel that. So what our friends are there for is to create a secure, emotional, tolerant environment where we can go to them and we can say, oh, God, I'm in a new relationship, and I know like everybody expects me to be happy and thrilled, and I do feel that, but I'm also scared. I want to run. I feel trapped. I want to get the hell out. And that's what we need each other for, to create that uh, tolerant environment so that every single human emotion can be expressed, that nothing needs to be concealed. Now, one person cannot do this for us. If you're looking for a relationship to deliver all this, to deliver your narcissism, to deliver your aspirations, and to tolerate every single emotion you've got, good fucking luck. You're in for a relationship that will last about two weeks before they run screaming. So we need friends. We need what the Buddha called Kalyanamita. It's important that when we see connections that we don't find people or that we don't, when somebody's coming to us with an emotion, to immediately try to fix them. Or we immediately try to solve or make the decisions for them. That's not what um, emotional or affect regulation or emotion regulation is about. What it means is when we're emotionally triggered, we need other people to receive, read the emotions, mirror it back to us, and give us a sense of just how worked up is appropriate. It's a process that's unconscious. We get upset, we verbalize something, other people unconsciously read our expressions, our body language, the tone of voice, and they mirror it back to us 
this, oh, I see you're sad, I see you're worried, okay, okay, well, I'm here. And that's what we need, because when they do that, they deactivate us unconsciously. When we are mirrored, we unconsciously deactivate. The entire right hemisphere of the brain is doing that all the time. When we don't share about the important emotional experiences of our lives, we don't deactivate ourselves, and we make it increasingly likely that we'll turn to addictions and defense mechanisms and avoidance strategies rather than the core sharing of our emotional experience. So to summarize, we need other people, not people who will fix, solve, or make decisions for us, but will tolerate the entire wealth of our emotional palate. We need people because we, without them, often will not feel that we have the capability or the endeavor to achieve our goals. And we need people to establish real worthy endeavors and behaviors that will help us grow. As the Buddha said, a true friend gives what is hard to give, does what is hard to do, endures our most difficult feelings. A good friend tells you their secrets while keeping your secrets safe. A good friend doesn't abandon you during misfortunes, nor do they judge you harshly. That's the Mita Sutta. I thank you for listening. I hope there was something worthwhile tucked in there. I'm going to turn off the tape. And... uh,